0: Hello, and welcome to ConnectPoint's podcast and sermon archives. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please go online to our website at connectpointupc.com or follow us on our Facebook page. Thank you very much, and I hope you enjoy this week's message. God bless. Thank you so much. A wonderful, wonderful thing it is to come to the house of God. Amen. I'm excited to be here. Amen. I could be somewhere else. And wherever else I was, it's still going to be cold and dark and rainy. If, if just staying home doesn't make it no longer cold, dark, and rainy. I'm glad I'm in the house of God. Because in here, it's not dark. It's dry. It's warm. And we get to feel the presence of God. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Amen. Amen. I want to talk to us a little bit tonight. It is Bible study night. I would highly encourage you to take notes and, uh, and, and write things down and, as we learn from the scriptures. Uh, tonight, specifically, you may want to take some notes because we're going to talk a little bit about the idea of falling from grace, and there are those that would teach And believe that the idea of falling from grace is impossible, that they might use a phrase like, once you're saved, you're always saved. Once you have been saved, however they relate that, that that applies to you forever. And uh, I want to look at that idea in the scripture tonight, and I think it would be a good thing uh, because it is something that uh, a lot of people think about that we would have some answers to give when we're talking to our neighbors and our coworkers and friends and family. The truth of the matter is it's, it's kind of difficult uh, for anyone who legitimately cares about the Bible, reads the Bible, studies the Bible at all. Um, it's kind of difficult to really believe in a once saved, always saved uh, idea. Um, most often this idea is used by those who would choose sin over righteousness, who look for justification or for the idea of a a loophole to salvation, uh, the idea to be able to just live however I want and still end up in heaven. And, of course, uh, the Bible speaks uh, diligently and at length against such thinking. Uh, But because it is a commonly held belief, we, we should know the truth. Somebody said, know the truth. I'll remind you of a scripture you hear around here all the time, John chapter eight, 31 through 32. Jesus is speaking to those Jews which believed on him. He says, if you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Amen. The Jews that were present that day when Jesus is speaking, some of them that were in the crowd respond to this direction of deity with an exaggerated sense of their own importance. In John eight thirty three, the very next verse, some of them speak up and they say, they answered him, we be Abraham's seed. So Je- Jesus, maybe you don't know who you're talking to right now, uh, maybe you stumbled onto the wrong crowd. Maybe you're just not aware of who we are. But we are Abraham's seed, and we're never, and, and we're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? They believed themselves to be above the idea of bondage. In fact, so much so they believed they were above the idea of bondage uh, which that word bondage there means to be enslaved to or to be in service to, they believed that so strongly that they were really just kind of washing over their own national history. Uh, it's ludicrous on its surface because surely they knew their history. They, the Jews could not deny the Egyptian, Babylonian, Syrian, and Roman conquests of their people had definitely been in bondage historically. They had definitely been in service to higher authorities in their history, but either they were referring to their civil liberty, which they had long enjoyed amongst their current society, or they meant that they had never recognized the, 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 uh, their conquerors or accepted that they were ever in dominion over in authority, because that's what some people will do. They'll just say, I'm not in bondage. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. You can give some people a thousand reasons as to why the life that they are living is one that is in bondage, and they'll just act like they don't see any of it, they don't recognize any of it, they don't know any of it, and they'll just say that they're not. Maybe that is the approach that they were taking that day. Uh, But there was a serious misunderstanding in their carnal tone. They seemed as yet unable to recognize the inner bondage. Somebody say inner. The inner bondage of the soul. Somebody say the soul. Look at your neighbor and tell them the soul matters. Because true freedom involves that of the soul. We could talk about freedom in a lot of levels. We could talk about national freedom. We could talk about personal freedom. We can fight for freedom. Argue for freedom. We can do a lot of stuff with freedom. But if you biblically, the Bible would teach us that true freedom involves the soul. It's about the inward man. A man may be physically free without actually being free uh, indeed. A man may be socially free without being free indeed. They may be in the, the full enjoyment of the social and political privileges uh, and yet they may find themselves captive, uh, slaves in their uh, uh, soul. A man may be mentally free without being free indeed. His intellect may be sound and his intellect may be capable. His mental vision may be clear and far reaching and yet he can still be a prisoner in his soul. We understand this. This is important for us to understand because what happens is sometimes we could Completely and totally misread and misunderstand the people that we are around. Just like those that were there that day, say we are in bondage to no man, but Jesus is looking at them and thinking your soul is in bondage desperately. Hey man, sometimes we look at people in our world and we think, man, it looks like it's going pretty well for them. It looks like uh, they got it together. It looks like uh, they're of a right mind, of a sound mind. It looks like they they got a decent job and they're able to hold it down. It looks like they're raising their kids and their marriage is uh, is going on. But what we're learning here is uh, a man is not free unless he's free in his soul. Oh, hallelujah. True freedom involves that of the soul. The soul is the highest part of a man. His highest nature must then be free for him to be free indeed. Amen. You can be physically bound and be free. Paul teaches us that you can be in prison and still be free. Amen. Jesus teaches us that they can have you bound, whipped, beaten, mocked, and still be the freest person on the face of the earth. Amen. If the soul, if the spiritual nature is in bondage, it affects the whole being. It affects everything. They saw themselves as free because they didn't think any man had authority over them. However, they were neglecting the inner man. Therefore, Jesus clarifies in his next words to them. He clarifies that this is a spiritual matter in John 8 and 34. Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Amen. True freedom involves that of the soul from sin. Everybody say from sin. Freedom is a freedom from sin. Sin makes the soul captive in, in, in divine law. Sin is a transgression of divine law and must be punished. Romans 6 and 23, the wages of sin is death. It is death. Sin brings with it a wage. It brings with it a punishment. Sin makes the soul captive unto itself. 1 John chapter 3 and 4. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. Oh, hallelujah. So sin is what our soul needs freedom from. Sin enslaves the soul. It dims its spiritual vision so that you cannot see into the invisible or you cannot see into the eternal when you allow sin to come into your life. Even if at some point you were able to grasp a divine vision, if God was showing you things you never saw before and telling you things you never heard before and teaching you things you never learned before, sin comes in and it steals your spiritual vision, your eyes be blinded. Uh, and, uh, and calloused over, if you will, to where you cannot see clearly sin spoils and impairs our, our spiritual taste, if I can say it that way, where we cannot relish in spiritual food anymore. It's just not enough anymore, preacher. I, I need more. I, the teaching was okay, but it needs to be better. The, the preaching was all right, but it needs to have more energy to it. You, you need to do more of this and a little more of that because it's just not really doing it for me like it used to do for me. It's not the preacher. It's not the teacher. It's not the song. It's not the lesson. It's not the classroom teacher, the Sunday school teacher. It's not the youth leader. It's that sin gets in and starts stealing your spiritual appetite. And all of a sudden, what used to work doesn't work anymore. It cramps and destroys our spiritual aspirations and our capacities. Sin clips our wings as if we were a bird. Flips our wings as if we were a bird. Sin excludes and prevents the soul from its spiritual rights and its privileges peace that we can have with God, the friendship that we can have with God, the connectivity that exists that we can have with the almighty God, all of a sudden it doesn't feel like it's there anymore. It feels like, and why why does it feel like I'm alone now? Why does it feel like I can't really pray? And why does it feel like I, I don't really have a relationship anymore? Sin steals these things. And so Jesus then illustratively makes his point In John 8 and 35, it says, And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. They, being a people understanding their own history, would understand the idea of the difference between the son and the servant. They may even go back to the the understanding of Isaac and Ishmael. They may even reflect on the lives of their ancestors and the difference between Isaac, who was born of Sarah, who was Abraham's wife, and Ishmael, who was born of Sarah's servant, Hagar. Isaac was able to stay with the family, but oh, after Isaac was born, Hagar and Ishmael had to be cast away. They were gone. Jesus says, the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. And that's sad to us, but we have to keep reading. Don't stop there. Because then Jesus says, if the son, therefore, shall make you free, then it don't matter if you're the son or the servant, ye shall be free indeed. Oh, hallelujah. Jesus goes on to say, I understand you under, you know Isaac and Ishmael. and You understand how things used to work under the law. And you get it uh, that uh, uh, a son born of a wife uh, is different than a son born of a servant. Uh, but Jesus says, I've made a change. And that is, if the son, uh, amen, comes into your life. Uh, if the son makes you free, uh, then ye shall be free indeed. Are we glad for that tonight? Uh, are we happy? Happy that though I was born a sinner, Christ died for me. Uh, though I was lost in darkness, uh, He made a way uh, that we are Gentiles. Uh, I'm not a Jew, uh, but I'm a Gentile, and yet I have access to salvation. Uh, why? Uh, because the Son makes me free. Oh, somebody say, Praise the Lord. Because the Son makes me free. The grace that Calvary produced is amazing grace. It is amazing grace. And to say, though, that one cannot fall from grace cheapens what was done at Calvary. It cheapens it. Let's look now at some of the things that Paul has to say. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 1. He says, We then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. Let me tell you something about this verse. This verse need not be written, it would not need to be in your Bible if nobody could fall from grace. The only way that we could receive the grace of God in vain is if after we receive it, we were to fall from grace and be lost. That's the only way that you could receive it in vain. If it were possible or if it were impossible for a person to receive the grace of God and be lost, if that was an impossible thought process, then there is no way that the work done to bring a person into grace could ever be in vain. How could it ever be in vain, the work and the process of finding somebody's uh, uh, pro- life, uh, into salvation, their pathway into salvation, the grace of God leading them into salvation, if that, if that can never be gone, then how could that work ever be done in vain? Paul writes to the Galatians, who he says began their Christian lives in the spirit. Galatians 3 and 3, he says, are you so foolish, having begun in the spirit, You are now made perfect by the flesh. You began in the Spirit. Notice there. Notice what he is saying. It's important the capital S. This is the Spirit of the Almighty God. He's talking to the people of Galatians, the church people of Galatia. He says, You began in the Spirit. You were led by God in the spirit. You were saved. But if you began in the spirit, why now are you being foolish in thinking that you can be made perfect in your flesh? He goes on to say in Galatians 4.11, I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Why would he speak this way to them? Why would he talk to saved people who were saved by grace and the Spirit of God came upon them? These were what we would call apostolic Pentecostal people. This is the New Testament church. But why would he say that of them? because he is speaking to people who have turned from the teachings that he had brought into their world and their church was founded upon, and they have now sought to be justified by the works of the law. They were literally going backwards from what they had received in the Spirit. They had literally changed their course. The Spirit was leading them this way, and they are now denying the Spirit and going back to the law, trying to do in their flesh what the Spirit had begun in them. He says that it's making his labor, all of the work, all the preaching all of the counsel, all of the guidance, all of the prayers, all of the miracles, all of the stuff is now in vain. Paul also says in First Thessalonians 3 and 5, for this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you and our labor be in vain. Yes, you're saved by grace, Yes, the Spirit of God is active in you. Yes, you've been baptized in His name and filled with the Spirit. But He says, uh, I need to, I need to hear from you. We need to talk. I need to know what's going on because it seems like uh, the tempter may have gotten into some of your lives uh, and tempted you. Uh, And my labor is in vain. Your labor is in vain. The whole thing is in vain. These were the same believers that had in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 6. For our gospel came not unto you in in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. As ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake, and ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Ghost. The same people that he says got, the, got saved through the gospel and it was powerful and they received the Holy Ghost and the joy of the Holy Ghost came into their lives. Uh, These same believers in Galatia and Thessalonica, these that had been converted, if I can say it that way, by the gospel message of Jesus Christ and been saved uh, by the grace of the Almighty God. uh, No one could deny that. No one could deny that these church people that Paul is now writing to uh, had been saved by grace. Uh, But how then could Paul's work in leading them to Christ be in vain only if they had once believed and once been saved and now were lost that's the only way that any of that could have been done in vain Paul says it very clearly in Galatians 5 and 4 which is a devastating verse Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. Now you may be thinking what I'm thinking. If that verse is literally in the Bible, how does anybody believe that you can't fall from grace? The difficulty is that the idea of once saved, always saved is very appealing to our flesh. It's very appealing to the carnal mind's way of thinking. It's very appealing to anyone who would like to draw a crowd or get a lot of people to claim that they've been saved or even have a lot of people coming to church. It's a very appealing thing because it means so very little. You don't have to sacrifice anything. You don't have to surrender anything. You don't have to submit yourself to anything. You don't have to walk away from anything. You can just keep living your life, doing the things that make your flesh feel good. You can just continue to do what you were doing before you were saved, but now just say, I'm saved. And because I'm saved... I can never fall from grace. I can never go to hell. I'm automatically going to heaven because I was saved. That's the only reason why such a doctrine would even exist in our world today. Because people will not read the Bible, but instead just believe whatever someone tells them to believe. And take the easy the easy road. You see what I mean when I say to say that one cannot fall from grace cheapens what Calvary did. They were going back, seeking once again to be justified by the law. Backwards. Backwards. The gift that we are given whether it be the gift of the Holy Ghost in Acts 2 and 38, whether it be the gift of righteousness in Romans 5 and 17, whether it be the gift of grace in Ephesians 2 and 8, or the gift of eternal life in Romans 6 and 23, no matter what, it's all Christ in us, the hope of glory. It's all Christ in us. Colossians chapter three and verse four. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. When Christ, who is our life, it means our eternal life, We know that he's the life giver. We understand that I don't have life, natural life, without God creating me. We know he is the creator. But the Bible is talking here about appearing with him in glory. This is not talking about natural life. This is talking about the end of natural life uh, and the beginning of eternal life. When Christ, who is our eternal life, only as I have Christ do I have eternal life. I cannot have eternal life outside of Christ and not just outside of a Christ existing somewhere uh, in the cosmos or existing somehow, uh, amen, but I have to have Christ in me. In 1 John 5 and 12, he that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Amen. Hath not life. So if I put Jesus out of my life, I put away eternal life as well. Amen. If I push away Jesus, I push away heaven. If I push away the Savior, I push away my salvation. Oh, hallelujah we lose grace righteousness eternal life we lose all of those things because those things are all in him you say well i had them yes you had them when you had him oh hallelujah you had them you had them when you had him when he was gone you don't have those things anymore When I push away my salvation, I push away my Savior, and I don't have all of the things that my Savior brought into my life. This is why uh they're, they're sometimes it's not all the time, thank God, but sometimes new converts uh, they go through this like uh, uh, almost like this uh, uh, spiritual honeymoon for a little while, their spiritual high, and then uh, a few months or six months or or whatever later uh, they start to really struggle and the reason why they're really struggling is uh, is because uh, they're starting to lose their desire lose their passion, lose their drive uh, because uh, of what we talked about earlier. They're allowing some of that old flesh uh, and that old carnality to start coming back in uh, and start kind of working on their mind and dictating their decisions and how faithful they're going to be and if they're going to pray today or read their Bible today or go to church this week or work on their relationship with God uh, and it starts to work against them uh, and so they start to push those things away and grab a hold of some of the old men. That's exactly what they were doing. They were grabbing a hold of the law. The law was the old way. The law was fulfilled at Calvary. The law was done when the pr- the precious lamb was sacrificed. Hallelujah. But they in their flesh. You see, it's flesh. I know it's talking about the law and the law in its time was wonderful. And the law in its time was how people were saved. But after Calvary, it was a flesh thing uh, to go back uh, to the law. And we do the same thing. Uh, we turn back to our flesh. Uh, and we lose our zeal and we lose our passion for the things of God. Uh, but what we need to understand uh, is as soon as I go back to the flesh, uh, I'm pushing away my Savior. And when I push away my Savior, I'm pushing away my righteousness. Uh, I'm pushing away my salvation. I'm pushing away my mercy giver. I'm pushing away away my keeper my protector oh hallelujah hallelujah the biggest problem with this false doctrine of once saved always saved is that it's not biblical that's the biggest problem that's always the biggest problem with something if it's not biblical the next problem is that it leads people to be loose and careless in their moral life. Justifying sin by believing that no matter what they do, they can't be lost. A a belief that no matter what I do, I'm saved and there's nothing that can keep me from heaven is basically telling your flesh, You got a free pass. It's telling your flesh you got a green light. Any doctrine that leads us away from God and His holiness should be questioned. Any doctrine that embraces sin and flesh and pushes away purity is dangerous. It is said that Paul suffered for the church. Somebody say suffered. Look at it in Colossians 1.24. Who, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Let me ask you a question. What would be the point of Paul's suffering for the church if they were Saved and eternally secure, why is he suffering for the church? In fact, why is he writing these letters at all? Why do we even have two-thirds of the New Testament? What's the point of writing all these letters to church people, to churches, who are already people who have already heard the gospel, repented, been baptized in Jesus' name, filled with the Holy Ghost. They've been saved by grace, right? If that's already happened and they're eternally secure and nothing they do can change it, why is Paul sitting in prison writing letters to them? Why is Paul writing letters and saying, look, you better watch out for so-and-so because that's a wolf in sheep's clothing. And if anybody tells you there's another Savior but Jesus, uh, you need to deny them to their face. Uh, and if people, uh, 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 if you find people that try to pull you away from the gospel, you need to cut ties with them. Why is Paul telling them all of this stuff about how they should treat one another and love one another and how they should give themselves to God? Why is he talking about sacrifice and personal commitment? Why does any of that matter? matter if they're eternally secure already makes no difference why does anybody ever talk about anything other than just how to be saved initially if once you are saved initially you are eternally saved forever why does anybody talk about anything paul answers like this when he speaks to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians chapter one, verse two. Under the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. Look at verse six. Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, So it wasn't just a bunch of people that had heard a message. The message had been confirmed in their life. They didn't just hear about the gospel. The gospel had been confirmed in their life. Look at verse seven. So that you come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He said not only is God, is this message confirmed in you, but you you don't stand behind anybody when it comes to the gift of God. You know you understand the gift of God. You can operate in the gift of God. He's talking about church people. But then look at 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 2. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved. If. Everybody see it? You're saved. If. Ye keep in memory what I preached unto you unless ye have believed in vain. If. It doesn't just end with by which also ye are saved. They were saved as long as they did not believe in vain. Look at Colossians 1 and 23. If. Ye continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Continue in the faith. And if you're not moved away, oh hallelujah, if you don't fall from grace, In fact, the idea of falling from grace, the statement alone needs to be considered because falling implies that something accidental happened. But that's not how it works. When we fall away from grace, we actually choose to walk away from grace. We choose to deny the grace. We choose to choose something else instead of choosing Christ. Amen? Hebrews 3 and 6. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. If we hold on unto the end that means that I don't get to be like well this is my 20th Saved anniversary. I've made the date. I gave 20 years, so now I'm saved no matter what. I don't get to be 80 and decide, don't matter what happens from here on out, I'm saved no matter what. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches unto the end. Unto the end. In fact, believers are encouraged to help one another in our salvation. We're encouraged to help one another in staying saved. Hebrews chapter 3, 13 and 14, but exhort one another daily. While it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, for we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Exhort one another, he says. You started out great. Grace made a way where there seemed to be no way. Oh, hallelujah. Amen. We are not anti-grace. We are all in on grace. Amen. Pentecostals are not anti-grace. We're all in on grace. We understand without grace, we are not saved. We would not have made it any any step. Uh, We didn't have a chance. Does anybody agree with me tonight? Uh, We didn't have a chance. Uh, We were going down a long, dark road with a dead-end sign along the edge. Uh, We were going nowhere fast. Uh, But God came in. Uh, Grace came in. Uh, Light came in. Uh, Salvation came in. We started out great because of grace. We started out great because of the love of God, because of the wonderful mercy of God. But he says the deceitfulness of sin can cause you to fall from grace. The deceitfulness of sin. Let me tell you something. Sin is really good at telling you it's not sin. Sin? Me? No. No, I'm not sin. No, this is good. Sin is really good, it's the deceitfulness of sin. Amen. We understand that there are aspects to the the last day's church that imply that you better be on your game spiritually. Am I right? There are aspects of the end times church that shout at us from Scripture that say you better not be playing games when the end is drawing near. Church better not just be some thing you do when the end draws near. You better be focused. You better be on fire. You better be looking to heaven. You better be praying. You better be reading the Bible, studying the scriptures, going to the altar, praying in your home, praying at work. You better be doing all of that. Better be aware. And It tells us exhort one another daily. It means to call them near. It means to pray for. It means to encourage. It's something that the last days church is supposed to be really good at. Amen. That's why I get a little, I get a little nervous when I hear people tell me that. All the church years ago was much better at getting together and having people over for fellowship and spending time with one another. and The church years ago was better at helping people when they came out of the world and giving them a place to connect and inviting them over for dinner and these types of things. I I get a little nervous when I hear that uh, because the end time church uh, is supposed to be better at that uh, than the church of years ago because the end time church uh, is supposed to be exhorting one another, encouraging encouraging one another, praying for one another, calling and drawing people near. Oh, hallelujah. And just so you understand, that's not somebody's job description here. There is no staff position in our church whose job it is to have game nights at their house. It's not somebody's job description to make dinner and bring it to your house and invite other people to your house and organize everything and then say, okay, now fellowship. <laughs> we are supposed to exhort one another daily. In fact, one way to accomplish this is found in another thing that we should encourage each other in. In Hebrews ten twenty three. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering for he is faithful that promised. and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to provoke unto good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. That's an interesting thing It's an interesting thing that so much the more, it's one of the few things you'll find in scripture that specifically says, this is gonna have to happen more in the end. It's a progressive thing. It's interesting because the aspects of salvation they don't progress like that. To use a dumb illustration, We didn't start out baptizing people in the name of Jesus one time, and now in 2021, they have to go under 10 times. We don't do that so much the more as the day approaches. Oh man, this is taking forever. I know it's a dumb illustration, but you get my point. There are things that don't progress. But this is interesting because this says as far as fellowshipping and exhorting one another and gathering ourselves together and coming together as the church and being together as the body, that needs to happen so much the more. Amen. Why? Why would something like that need to progress? Well, I think you and I can feel why. I think you and I can feel why. Have you noticed? Have you noticed Wednesday nights around here lately? have you noticed we sing a song all of a sudden we come up people are praying the spirit of God begins to move you know why because people are being bombarded and people are being attacked and there's spiritual warfare taking place and everything that can be shaken is being shaken and that's taxing even to the apostolic that wears people out I talked about it being weary and well doing it's weary even to the apostolic amen I know I'm on solid ground but it's tiresome looking at everything shake around me it sometimes wears me out seeing everybody falling apart around me I'm thankful for my foundation and Jesus is the cornerstone but my world is falling apart and that's taxing and that wears me out but the Bible says that in that environment the church has got to get together more the body's got to get together more more fellowship more connection showing each other exhorting one another helping one another praying for one another. Oh, hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. Forsaking the assembly, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some is. There will always be some who want to talk about less. We need less we don't, need, we don't need more of that. We need less of that. We don't need to go to church more. We need to go to church less. You know what? I would, I would get on board in a heartbeat with this whole be the church, the church is not in the walls, and all that kind of stuff. And you know I'm not against it. But if all of the denominations that push that so drastically hard were actually being the church outside the walls, it wouldn't be hard to get on board with that ideology. Right? I'd be super excited about that. If all of the denominations that are saying, we don't need to go to church, this church thing is for the past. We'll just have one hour on Sunday, that's all we need, uh, and then we're just going to be the church the rest of the time. If they were all really being the church the rest of the time, uh, then that would be fantastic. But you have to wear more than a T-shirt that says, be the church, to be the church. Amen. Amen. And the idea of Scripture contextually is not uh, that the church uh, spends less time together so that they can go out and do it on their own. The idea contextually is is that the church comes together in prayers and comes together in worship and comes together for preaching and teaching but also goes out together and works together and combines together in their homes uh, and reaches out to their neighbor and brings people in and draws them close and exhales. Them. Oh, hallelujah! Amen. The church is important. We got to get to church. We got to be around believers. It's a powerful thing to be around believers. It's a wonderful thing. Amen. It's a wonderful thing. I want, I want us to understand. I'm going to make this statement. When I come into this place, when I come around these precious people and I come into this environment, amen, it's precious. It's precious. There's, because while I'm in this place, there's a safety. It's a refuge. Amen? The nonsense, the constant, the pressure, the divisiveness, the arguments, the shaming, not in here. But I, with that, I'm not, I, I'm not afraid to make that statement. I think you understand what I'm saying. But, but I want us to understand, we don't come here to hide. I don't come to church to hide. I come to church to refuel so I can get back in the fight. Amen? Amen. Amen. Anybody who tells you they don't need to refuel spiritually? Well, I don't know how to finish that sentence. (laughs) Just don't follow that. (laughs) Don't follow that. We need to refuel. We need to replenish. You say, Pastor, can't we do that at home? Sure you can. Absolutely. And if you're not, you ain't going to make it to next service. Amen. You're not going to make it. In this environment, this toxic environment that we live in today, you can't go Sunday to Sunday. I don't believe it ever worked well. But when I was a kid, it seemed like, people could do it a little bit more and stay around longer. It doesn't seem like they ever stayed alone forever, though. But in this environment, if you're going to come here on a Sunday and think, I don't need to do anything else until next Sunday, you will not make it. Amen. Amen. You're going to lose a lot of battles. You're going to be physically exhausted. You're going to walk into this place looking like you've been beat up all week long. So no, I'm not saying that this is the only place we refuel, we replenish, we refresh. But what I'm saying is that this is a good place to come together with like-minded people to see signs, wonders, and miracles take place, to hear the Word of God, to find the life that is in Christ, and to work on our salvation so that I can stay saved so that I'm not falling away from grace or pushing God away but so I can build my relationship with God oh hallelujah one more thing Romans 11 I'll be done Romans 11 calls all Gentiles a wild olive tree it's illustrative we are the wild olive tree the natural branches of the tree have been cut off speaking of the Israelite nation the natural branches which were the Israelite nation were cut off but the Gentiles were grafted in, amen, by Christ. Look at Romans 11, 21, 24. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and the severity of God on them which fell, severity, but toward thee, goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise, thou also shall be cut off. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in. They were cut off, and you were grafted in. If you don't continue to believe, you'll get cut off. If they come out of their unbelief, they'll be grafted back in for God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wert cut off of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be of natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? He says, look, you were the wild, crazy, sinful Gentiles, and you got a chance to come into the church. You were saved by grace, and those that were born connected to the vine, connected to the root, they started going down after their own flesh, and so they were cut off Uh, But you were grafted in. Uh, If they come out of their unbelief, uh, they'll be grafted in too. Uh, If you quit believing, you'll be cut off like they were. We can fall from grace. But we can also be grafted in again. Oh, hallelujah. We are thankful for the grace of God. Without it, there would be no salvation. But we know we must remain in Christ to be saved. His spirit dwelling in us. We also know that anyone who falls from grace can get back again. Can get back again. The same grace that covered our sinfulness the first time can cleanse and cover our sin again. But we must be diligent. Someone say diligent. We must be diligent that we don't fall into the old traps and try to finish in our flesh what we began in the spirit through grace. Stand with me tonight. Don't Try to finish this thing in your flesh. You say, how does that look, preacher? How does it look? You're talking to the church. You're not talking to a bunch of people that don't even understand salvation. You're talking to the church. What does it look like? I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like coming to church, showing up early, shaking everybody's hand, going through the motions. Singing the songs, doing all of the stuff, but being disconnected from the Spirit, having a broken relationship with God. There will be those that will cry, Lord, Lord. Didn't we do all this stuff? We did all the stuff, Lord. And he will say, Depart from me. Because I didn't, I didn't know you. I never knew you. It's relationship. It's intimate connection. It's deep, meaningful relationship with God. So that's how someone who calls themselves an apostolic Pentecostal believer could could fall into the trap of trying to finish this thing in their flesh even though they began it in the Spirit. Amen? Amen? That's a lie of the devil. It's a trap of our flesh. It's the deceitfulness of sin. But we have to be watching for it. Amen? we got to be watching for it because by grace, we are saved but we could fall from grace. Amen? Amen. Amen. It's the reason why we say, don't just get connected, but stay connected. You get connected in here, but don't just get connected in here. Stay connected when you leave here. And don't just stay connected, but live. Live connected. Live your life connected to the Lord God Almighty, to the grace of God, the Spirit of God. Lift your hands and thank Him for it. Can we do that? Lord, we love you so much. Lord, we love you. Thank you for listening to our podcast this week. We hope you enjoyed this message. Remember, if you would like to find out more information about our church or to contact us, please go online at connectpointupc.com. And also, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app so you will be automatically notified of new episodes. Thank you, and we hope you have a great week.